0: what's new in science this week what's new in science this week bench talk the week in science bench talk bench talk bench talk you are now listening to bench talk welcome to bench talk the week in
1: science bench talk the The week week in in science. science dave robinson here today's show is all about the heart how do the sugars we eat affect the heart How does exercise alter the way hearts work? Today's episode is another lecture from the Bench Talk Live series organized by the Kentucky Academy of Science. This time, it's Dr. Bradford Hill of the University of Louisville Diabetes and Obesity Center. The title of his talk is Cardiac Metabolism in Health and Disease. And if you want to see the slides he was showing during this talk, do an internet search for Bench Talk Live, and scroll down to the description for the January 27th session. The PowerPoint slides are available right there. Just look for Dr. Bradford Hill. And what's pretty cool about this talk is the large number of laboratory techniques and procedures that Dr. Hill covers in this talk about how to study animal hearts. I counted 10 different techniques, so... While you listen, see if you can spot all 10. And at the end of the show, I'll remind you what they were. So let's get started. Here is Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science.
2: So our next speaker, then, I'm going to turn it over to Brad Hill. Brad Hill is a researcher at the University of Louisville Diabetes and Obesity Center and is studying cardiac metabolism, so thank you for joining us. I will turn it over to you.
0: Thank you very much. So uh, what I wanted to do today is try to, it's going to be a deep dive into metabolism. That's what we study uh, a lot here in the in Diabetes and Obesity Center. But we study really how metabolism in the heart influences cardiac remodeling. And we like to study this in the context of physiological remodeling, which just happens with exercise, for example, athlete's heart, or during pregnancy, for the, pregnant, uh, the maternal heart gets much bigger during pregnancy because it has to pump a lot of blood. And then we also study it in the context of pathological stressors, such as hypertension and myocardial infarction. So basically in our lab, we really study three main areas. We try to understand how metabolism regulates heart failure, influences uh, uh, the propensity for developing heart failure, but also can be used as a therapy potentially. We try to understand how metabolism regulates regeneration. We use uh, various even small models, such as worms for this, but also... Uh, trying to un- understand how the myocytes can be coaxed to proliferate. And then we, uh, what I'm gonna spend most of the time today talking about is how maybe exercise, uh, how metabolism regulates exercise induced changes in the heart that may cause it to not only get bigger, but also uh, promote uh, resilience. And we study uh, a lot in the context of glucose metabolism, the six carbon molecule, of course, glucose is a sugar. It's a very common substrate for all tissues, uh, most tissues anyway. Um, and so we, we we work a lot in that area. And I hope that by the end of this, you'll understand why we study that so deeply. So why do we study metabolism in general? Well, I think most of the textbooks that you've read and, and most of you've heard in, in, in either in high school or undergraduate education has really studied it from the context of ATP production, energy provision through either mitochondrial metabolism or glycolysis. But what's not as well appreciated are the other facets of biology that metabolism controls, such as the biosynthesis of things such as phospholipids, nucleotides, amino acids. So, and I'm showing this to the left because this is just the glycolytic pathway, which most most are familiar with. And the intermediates of these pathways can be used not only for energy, but they have to make, there's a decision made by the cell at some level to coordinate um, the glucose derived carbon to these other pathways to make various biomolecules. Metabolism is also very important in controlling redox state, not only appearing in nucleotide pools, but also natural antioxidants that are in all of our cells, such as glutathione. And it's very important in signaling and transcription and regulation of gene expression. So it can activate key kinase pathways, such as AMP kinase, mTOR pathway, the AKT pathway, and it can also regulate epigenetic modification as well. And so one of the really deeper questions that we're trying to understand is how does a cell know when and where to shuttle nutrients? So I'm showing a very uh, simplified schematic of some pathways on the left. Glucose can be taken into the cell through glucose transporters, and it goes through several different interconvergence all the way to pyruvate. But there are several alternate fates as well, as I mentioned before, and many of these intermediates sit at what's called a branch point. For example, glucose 6 phosphate, fructose 6 phosphate, um, glyceraldehyde phosphate, all of these sit at a branch point where they 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 can have a choice of going down one a few different paths. And it's almost like the little tree at the right where if you're traversing this branch, if you're in the uh, xylem, I guess, you would go you could have a chance to go this pathway or this pathway. So we're really interested in how the cell uh, coordinates this these metabolic decisions. And it's Much more complicated than that, this is a a very simplified metabolic map, and you can see that it's all connected. It's a giant web, so if you pull one little string, the whole thing tends to come with it in some way, shape, or form. So in the context of heart failure, uh, and there's a few different types of heart failure, I'm showing two simplified forms here. In one, the heart can't fill. This is diastolic dysfunction. Um, This commonly happens in diabetes, in in, uh, type 2 diabetics. And there's also changes in systolic function, meaning the heart can't pump properly. The walls tend to thin, the chambers dilate, and the heart just doesn't have the power to pump. And what's been noticed in the literature over the years is that uh, this uh, heart failure is associated with a change in in the fate of glucose. So glucose, instead of being converted by pyruvate and used to form acetyl-CoA and make energy in the mitochondrion, it, a lot of it's kicked out to lactase. So you're actually, this is a six carbon molecule. You, you're actually losing three carbons. So this is a very inefficient way to make energy because you're actually losing three carb, half of what you take in basically. And However, it's really not been unclear of what really happens in metabolism in different forms of remodeling, such as occurs with exercise. So with aerobic exercise, if uh, you do it fairly intensely and regularly, you'll have a form of growth in which the heart will get 10%, 15% bigger and this is associated with an increase in the volume of the uh, of the ventricles and also an increase in the you know, a little bit of an increase in the size of the wall so the heart has a better volume and pumping power in the context of resistant exercise such as squats these 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 types of exercises tend to increase blood pressure transiently really heavy leg presses for example will increase blood pressure to very high levels astoundingly high and the heart models in this case in a way that's more of a concentric hypertrophy where the walls will uh, hypertrophy a bit more, although the chamber dimension usually doesn't change that much. And so we've been trying to focus on trying to understand how metabolism in a normal physiological mode of remodeling affects metabolism. So what I want to share with you is some data collected over the last four or five years from two very talented young scientists, Andrew Gibb, Who was a graduate student in the lab. He's now a a postdoctoral fellow at Temple University and a current student in the Department of Physiology uh, in the Diabetes and Obesity Center, um, Kyle Fulgen. So the two questions we really tried to address are very simple questions. How does cardiac metabolism change with exercise as well as uh, the conditions of heart failure? Of course, I'm going to focus on exercise today. And we really want to know, do these cardiac metabolic changes cause remodeling of the heart? So we study this in the context of mice, as far as the models. Um, but we use a treadmill system, which the treadmill is angled, and so these mice are having to run up a, an incline. And they, these mice actually love to run. So we put them on the treadmill. They get trained. They adapt. Their hearts get bigger. They have ex- increased exercise capacity. They can run farther and longer, or farther and longer, and faster to some extent. And so some of the first experiments we did, we put them on the treadmill and put them at. Uh, we make them run for forty minutes at 75% of their max capacity. And right after the the bout of exercise, we collected blood for analysis because we wanted to see what other circulating substrates were available to the heart during exercise. So the heart can use many different substrates. It can use glucose, it can use fatty acids, that's its predominant source. It can use lactate. It can use some amino acids to some extent as well. And so not surprisingly, after this exercise bout, we saw an increase in blood lactate. Lactate comes from the skeletal muscle. Um, When it uses glucose, it kicks out lactate, and that lactate is used as a source of substrate by the heart and other tissues as well. And also during exercise, you stimulate lipolysis uh, from the adipose tissue, which releases fatty acids into the blood, and we see an increase in this. And some older data, I'm not going to go over this too much, older data show that if you just take a heart out and perfuse it with these substrates, if you increase lactate, what what you do is increase the reliance of the heart on lactate for energy, and you actually decrease the amount of glucose that's used for energy. And if you increase palmitate, then you see the same type thing. Palmitate takes over as the major substrate, and glucose is not the substrate for energy production anymore. If you increase both, then you really squash this to where glucose is really hardly contributing at all to energy in the heart. So we wanted to ask the question, well, this suggests that potentially glucose utilization Uh, catabolism is decreased during exercise. So what we did is we did this same type of bout of exercise and then we performed biochemical analyses in the heart. And I'm showing the glycolytic pathway here and some of the major enzymes that control it. And one of the major ones is this enzyme called uh, PFK1, which is a a committed step of glycolysis and a rate limiting step of glycolysis. And it's controlled by multiple allosteric regulators. Some of them inhibit the activity of this enzyme and some of them activate. And one of the ones that activate is a metabolic product called fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. It's made from fructose 6-phosphate. So basically this is a fructose molecule that has a phosphate at the sixth position. And PFK2, this very similar enzyme to PFK1, phosphorylates this to make fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. And this activates the enzyme and promotes glycolysis. So we can look at the, the levels of phosphorylation of this enzyme to see what type of activation state this enzyme's in and infer what kind of activity is going on for the level of PFK. And so when we did this, um, we performed what's called a Western blot, and this is just an, an antibody-based approach to detect this form of the enzyme. And we see in the conditions, in the exercise, each, each one of these is an individual exercised mouse, heart, uh, lysate. We see that the, the immunoreactivity of this enzyme goes way down with exercise, so the phosphorylated form goes way down, which would suggest that you're removing this positive allosteric, allosteric activator, which would decrease the activity of this enzyme. And if that is true, it's known that glycogen would, would accumulate because when this is inhibited glycogen, the carbons back up and are stored as glycogen. And that's exactly what we see. So in contrast to skeletal muscle during exercise, which you have glycogen depletion, in the heart during exercise, there's actually glycogen accumulation. So with all of these factors together, the increase in circulating lactate and fatty acids, the decrease in PFK activity. This suggests that glucose catabolism is a decrease in the heart during an intense bout of aerobic exercise. So next, we wanted to see what happens in the adapted heart. So after a four-week uh, training period of these mice, these mice train five days a week. And then after this, we did biochemical analyses. But just to show the adaptation, after this four weeks, this is the heart weight divided by the tibia length. And we see about a 15% increase in overall heart weight in these much, which is consistent with athlete's heart. And there are biochemical measures of an adapted tissue, which is uh, the activation of this phosphorylation of AKT, which we see this as well. And importantly, we, get, we found activation of what's known as the exercise gene program in the heart, which is characterized by a decrease in the CBb beta and an increase in cited four, which are just two genes that are known to control some of the other genes that regulate physiologic growth of the heart. So this tells us that our model is good, it's doing what it's supposed to do. So we decided to look at this PFK2 enzyme at one hour after, so it gave these mice an hour recovery after this four weeks of training, after their last exercise bout. And one hour after this exercise bout, we see similar to what we saw acutely, a decrease in the phosphorylation of this enzyme. However, 24 hours after the bout, what we see is it it flipped, diametrically opposed response in which we see that the PFK activity seems to be elevated And in this state the mouse is recovered and the hearts can be excised and perfused ex vivo with a radio labeled glucose to measure glycolytic rate and at this time we're seeing an increase in glycolytic flux in the heart so what this sets up is this paradigm of uh, metabolic periodicity where that during the exercise bout, we think there's a decrease in glucose catabolism at the level of pfk and this comes back up uh, during the recovery period but with increased level of adaptation with increased training the basal level of this glucose catabolism goes up, but we still see this diminishment in glucose utilization. So this made us ask the question, might this change uh, in in glycolytic activity and PFK activity regulate cardiac adaptation? So to try to test this, we used mice that overexpress uh, mutant transgenes for this PFK2 enzyme that controls uh, this allosteric activator for PFK1. And so we call these mice the glyco high mice and so this is a mutant transgene in which uh, there's been intentional point mutations put into this transgene to activate the kinase domain and inhibit the phosphatase domain so basically these mice are driving fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 2-6-bisphosphate and then we have the glycol low mice which do the opposite so the kinase domain is dead and the phosphatase domain is active and this will remove this phosphorylation on 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 the two position and take it back to fructose 6-phosphate and decrease PFK activity. And our biochemical analyses work out. We see that with in the glycolomyce mice, a decrease in this allosteric activator and the glycol high mice, an increase. And as expected, if we perfuse these hearts with radiological glucose to measure glycolytic activity through this pathway, uh, we see the glycolomice mice have a lower glycolytic rate. The glycol high mice have a higher glycolytic rate. And as expected with inhibition of PFK, um, we see the glycolow mice have higher glycogen, and the glyco-high mice have lower glycogen levels, so the the model works um, basically. So we next did did a, a studies just to phenotype these mice to understand them a little better. And what we found, these mice had bigger hearts. Their heart with the tibia length was 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 more. The cross-sectional area of the myocytes themselves was bigger, so the myocytes themselves were bigger. They were wider. And then the capillary to myocyte ratio was more. So it was more, more capillaries to deliver blood to the myocytes per myocyte. And we also saw in these in these these mice a similar activation in the gene program that we see in exercise mice. So what I'm, show, I'm going to show at the bottom now is just wild type mice. These are non transgenic mice that have been exercised for four weeks as the exercise group or remains sedentary. And you see the pattern is almost identical to these glycolow mice. And these mice at the top were never exercised. So... What what this appears to tell us is that this decreasing glucose catabolism that occurs during exercise, just decreasing that is sufficient to drive this um, exercise growth program in the heart and promote basically athlete's heart. And we did echocardiography on these mice as well. And we show a very similar change in function as well as we do uh, when you compare those to the exercise adapted heart. So this made us question, well, how is this happening? If, if, If we know now that PFK, this decrease is sufficient to drive this growth, how is it doing that? And we, we thought, well, maybe it's because it's coordinating metabolism and doing something in these pathways. So this is a very difficult question to address in vivo because this is exercise. It has to be exercising. The mouth has to be exercising. And you have to somehow track metabolism. So to do this, we used a relatively new technology called Stable Isotope Resolve to Metabolomics. And this is a, a methodology that relies on um, natural isotopes of, in this case, carbon to resolve differences in metabolism. So on the left is a, a normal carbon, C12 carbon, predominantly most of the carbon on, on the planet is in the C12 form. There is a small amount on the plant that's a C, C13 form, but very small. But what we can, what you can do is label glucose. You can make glucose with this C13 carbon in the laboratory. And then provide this to cells, tissues, or organisms, and then track how this, these carbon labels end up in the molecules. So if I'm showing this here, this is a, an example of alanine. And so if you don't see any carbon, there's, of course, no C13 carbon there. You can track it to one carbons labeled, two, or three. And this is all based on mass because each C13 has, is, is one Dalton heavier than the C12. So by mass spectrometry, you can measure this. And so then you can make plots to understand how many carbons are labeled and how much they're labeled. So one of the first things we did was we did something called deep net network tracing, where we gave these gave mice a liquid diet where all of the carbohydrate is uh, supplanted with carbon 13 containing glucose. Um, and so these mice are given this liquid diet for a couple of days without the C12 just to habituate them to the diet so they, they know what's coming at them so they will eat it. Um, and then on the third day you switch the diet to the C13 labeled diet and let them eat this overnight, after which you extract the, the tissues and you measure the metabolites in the lipid fraction, the polar fraction, and the protein fraction by mass spectrometry and NMR. And so one of the experiments we did was to take these glycolow mice that I mentioned for, uh, before the wild type mice and the glycol high mice, and just use this methodology to try to see what's going on in metabolism. And So an important thing is that the mice eat the same amount of food because if one of the strains doesn't eat as much, then, of course, it's going to skew the results. And these mice ate the same amount of food. And then this gave us the opportunity to look and see where is this carbon going? Is it going to this pathway, this pathway, all of them? And we can see how this uh, one change at PFK regulates this. Uh, One of the first things we do in these types of experiments is just look at the overall abundance. Don't worry about the label at the beginning. Just look at the abundance of the intermediates themselves. And I'm just showing a few here, and these are all intermediates in glycolysis, and I'll call your attention to the top two, the top panels, the glucose 6-phosphate and fructose 6-phosphate. And what we see is in the red bars, the glycolow mice, we see that the levels of these intermediates are higher than in the wild type mice, the black bars, and they're much higher than in the the glyco high mice and in the blue bars. And when you're thinking about these uh, metabolism, it's kind of, it's hard to visualize it sometimes. It's so complicated. So I try to think of a way, how can we visualize this volumetrically in a way? And so this kind of is a a rough sketch. It looks like a candlestick. But um, what I'm trying to do is show the relative pool size of all these metabolites. So glucose 6-phosphate and fructose 6-phosphate are pretty abundant overall, even in the wild type mice. Um, But if you look at these intermediates, the levels are much lower. And then at the end of the pathway, it goes up. In the glyco low mice what we see is that these amphibolic metabolites uh, upstream and uh, glucose 6-phosphate and fructose 6-phosphate are elevated so this looks more like a chalice now and the glyco high if anything these upstream metabolites are lower so this made us ask the question well is this what's going to happen whenever you have an uh, accumulation of these is it going to spill over to other pathways so that's where we use the label to try to track it so So I'm just going to show data from one experiment in which we uh, looked at uh, a few of these pathways. This is just glucose 6-phosphate. As you can see, the label, this is each is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. These are the number of carbons in in glucose. So uh, this bar shows this is a fully labeled glucose 6-phosphate molecule. I think you can appreciate that the glycolomides have a much higher level of the labeled glucose 6-phosphate as well as the unlabeled um, here. And then you can start tracking other pathways. So we can look down the pentose phosphate pathway. This is an ancillary bro- branch of glucose metabolism. And what we notice is that um, in, in some of these metabolites like ribose 5-phosphate, we see an increase in the enrichment of the M plus 5 compared to the other groups and increase in the unlabeled as well. And this doesn't really match the pattern downstream in this pathway. However, this is a branch point metabolite and it has an alternate fates. And we can track this carbon label down this pathway um, we see much higher levels of pyrophosphate in the glycolomice, the labeled and unlabeled forms. But we really saw a, a, a really high amount of labeling in this intermediate in the purine biosynthesis pathway called ICAR. And this, this purine synthesis pathway, actually, this is the de novo synthesis pathway for ATP and other purines such as GTP. And there really wasn't a remarkable increase in these compared to this. So what this seems to show is a channeling of glucose to make this metabolite. And this is interesting because this metabolite is known to activate an enzyme called AMP kinase. And we see in these mice indeed, that AMP kinase is activated, as indicated by this Western blot. So this is just, that's just one example of the, the type of data. And if you can think about this, you get hundreds of metabolites that you can start looking at and tracking through the entire metabolic map what's going on. What I've shown today is that low PFK activity, such as occurs during exercise, promotes the accumulation of glucose 6-phosphate and fructose 6-phosphate, and it appears to promote this metabolic channeling to ICAR in the heart, and we think this is leading to AMPK activation, and what we think is happening is that AMPK is driving this gene program that we see activated in exercise, and we think this is why the glycolomice haven't adapted heart already with even, even without exercise. So with that, I'd like to acknowledge the group, a fantastic group to work with. This is Kyle, who did a lot of these studies. It was Andrew Gibb, who's now at Temple. And I have a wonderful group group of colleagues to work with. We're a really collaborative environment. And I'd like to thank you for listening.
2: Thank you so much. I'm feeling really glad that I'm not one of the mice in your lab right now. because. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds exhausting.
0: <laughs> well, they the, the mice tend to love it. It's, it's weird. There are strains that of mice that cannot stand to run on the treadmill, and there are strains that love to run on the treadmill. So we have to use the strains that prefer to run <laughs> on the treadmill.
2: Well, thanks so much for, for sharing all of that. If anybody has questions, feel free to type them in or unmute and ask
1: questions. I, I had one. Those two kinds of mice, the glyco low and high, did they like exercising like more or
0: did some of them maybe it was harder to exercise? So we exercised both of those strains. They both exercise just fine. They both exercise just fine. But exercise capacity is not only how much the heart can pump, it's how much oxygen you can extract in the lungs. There's several factors um, that play into exercise capacity. So we don't think that that those hearts were deficient in, in ability to pump at that, you know, at that time.
1: Yeah, and my other question was: since you've got these metabolic pathways are going off to all of these different things, did you look at the whole animal, like the lows and the
0: highs? You know, like were their livers functioning differently, uh, or? Yeah, I didn't make that clear. So this this transgene was only expressed in the cardiac myocyte in the heart. Yeah. So it it should not affect. Oh the yeah, other so patients. it would only
1: show up in the heart.
0: So yeah, we yeah. If we did it all over, I think we would have a problem with exercise capacity. <laughs> I think it would change a lot. But no, we, we have a separate set of studies, and we're doing the same type of approach and looking in the exercised mice what's happening with exercise as well, just a normal wild-type mice, not in the glyco lo just to track what's happening in exercise itself. But, so the bottom line is it looks like exercise is good. Oh, absolutely. Exercise is good. <laughs> <So, laughs>
1: how about for a human? You You did the mice for two hours or something like that. How much should a human exercise?
0: Um, well, there was a recent study I saw today where, because there's this, there's a question, there's, there's the idea that ultra marathoners sometimes will have actually cardiomyopathy because they're, they're, they're exercising too much. But most of the studies now are telling us that that's hard to do. It's hard to get too much. Your body will tell you when to quit <laughs> for the most time. But, um, you know, moderate exercise, 30 minutes a day every day is usually enough. Now sometimes it depends on it's individual to individual. Some people may need more than others, right?
1: Yeah, but what if it's not really aerobic,
0: like I like to walk?
1: Not super aerobic.
0: No, no. And 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 really moderate to low exercise intensity exercise doesn't cause the robust growth of the heart, but it has it has been shown to have protective effects against things such as myocardial infarction, ischemia, reperfusion. Um, so it is still protective. So any exercise is better than none at all. Absolutely. And as you get older, I, I'm I'm getting older and I, my foot, feet are hurting. I can't run anymore like I used to. So you just got to do what you can. <laughs> That's cool. That's neat. Thank you.
2: <laughs> I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit more about just the connections between exercise and cardiac health and diabetes.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's some very old literature uh, It's turning the century early 1900 when they were t- showing that some severe type one diabetics when they would exercise and they would actually not adapt properly and it was bad for them it was about seven percent at that time of diabetics and I think now with better medicinal approaches I think exercise is is very beneficial for for diabetics it's even you know if you're a smoker this, pa- this paper today that I that I saw said that even with even if you're a smoker, exercise is good. It's good to do it even if you have a bad habit. <laughs> right. So I, I think absolutely. And, it, and it, it improves insulin sensitivity. That's one of the main things that it does. So it really combats type 2 diabetes quite well. Type 1 is a different bear altogether.
2: Thanks so all for coming and, and joining us this evening. And um, thanks, thanks, everybody.
0: That was
1: Dr. Bradford Hill of the Diabetes and Obesity Center, at the University of Louisville, and he was interviewed by Amanda Fuller of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Thank you, Brad and Amanda. And did you catch all 10 of those laboratory techniques covered in this talk? Well, it started off with lab mice running on uphill treadmills, then talked about quantifying the different metabolites in hearts after exercising and then perfusing isolated heart cells with different sugars, and then studying the phosphorylation of phosphofructose kinase, that's that PFK. And that was done using Western blots, which means that they use antibodies to analyze a specific protein. And then number five, feeding mice with radioactive glucose to study the production of metabolites in the heart, that's called metabolomics. 6. Using transgenic mice that express the PFK gene at different levels. 7. Studying the anatomy of exercising transgenic mice. 8. Echocardiography, which is the use of ultrasounds to study the heart. 9. Mass spectrometry. And finally, deep network tracing. Whew! Studying the heart is not an easy task. Oh, we've got to go now. You've been listening to Bench Talk, the Weekend Science. Thanks a lot, and see you next week.